Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Champions League is back and Chelsea still have a chance. We'll talk about the Blues surviving their trip to Paris as well as the tournament's other round of 16 starters. There's also Europa League, injuries to Wayne Rooney and Hugo Lloris, and an FA Cup weekend to talk about, but on a preview show that does not have a Premier League round to preview, we're going to dig a little bit deeper and ask, do English teams need to succeed in Europe for the Premier League to stay on its perch? Welcome everybody to the midweek edition of the World Soccer Talk podcast. I'm your host, Richard Farley. Thank you very much for joining us. PSG, Real Madrid, Wolfsburg, and Benfica were winners over the last two days in Champions League. And as I bring my co-host Nipun Chopra in, we'll start with the World's Premier League Premier Cup competition. Nipun, Chelsea falls 2-1 in Paris, but this might have been the team's best performance since Goose Heating took over. An equalizing goal from John Obi Mikel late in the first half pulled back Zlatan Ibrahimovic's opener with only Edison Cavani's late winner separating the sides. What were your thoughts on Tuesday's match? Yeah, I agree. I think this was one of Chelsea's best performances of the season, undoubtedly, because, you know, it it was tailor-made for what Chelsea are good at, which is defending very well. And and they did defend exceptionally well for long periods in this game and then hitting uh, teams on the break, uh, which they managed to do. Of course, the goal didn't come from a break, per se, but uh, a couple of different times, Costa was getting past the PSG defensive line. uh, And I, I thought they made a good game out of it. But at the end of the day, I, I thought PSG probably deserved to win. What did you think? I, I think the same thing. I think over the first half, Chelsea seemed to create the better opportunities without ever controlling or wanting to control play. And it's tempting to say things like, well, what if that first half header that Diego Costa seemed to right. miss? And you can't wonder, help but wonder if the face mask uh, hurt him on that one. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was very indicative of what you just said. Chelsea finding these isolated chances on the break or on set pieces, as it were. And I, if you're a Chelsea fan, maybe you go into halftime thinking, boy, if that ball doesn't ricochet off of Obi Mikel and go into the goal off of Zlatan's free kick, maybe we actually have something going here. But definitely in the second half, it, it seemed like a goal was going to come. And even after Angel Di Maria set up Zlat- um, Edison Cavani for that goal, it almost felt like another goal might be coming, Napoon. Yeah, it f- definitely felt that way. I, I thought once Cavani and Pastore came on, uh, it changed the game for PSG. Of course, it resulted in the goal, but they they created so much more. Ibra was freed up a little bit more. Di Maria was getting on the ball more. And I was wondering during the game why it took until the 75th minute for Blanc to make those changes. Because at 1-1, Richard, 
obviously PSG had to go for goals, and yet he sat on his butt for way too long, in my opinion. Yeah, it's it's very difficult to watch PSG and see all the talent they have and see the way that they can control a game, but also see how they seem to lack any clever ideas or any any points where they're clearly trying to attack another team. It's hard to watch these performances and not wonder about Lauren Blanc. I, I know three or four weeks ago, Kartik in a show alluded to the fact that eventually my feelings on Lauren Blanc yeah. were going to come out. And thankfully for you, they're not going to come out in reference to Manchester United because Blanc right. has just signed an extension at PSG. But I think this is a very typical kind of Lauren Blanc performance with PSG. I think a lot of people expected PSG to come into this game based on not only how they've played in league, but how they played in group group stage, how well they showed against Real Madrid, and have a pretty easy time of it. And they didn't have an easy time of it. And I think a lot of it seemed to be because Blanc seemed to just kind of throw his team out there and rely on the superiority of his skill players to win. Now, granted, that's eventually what happened. A great setup for Angel Di, Mar- from Angel Di Maria ended up providing for the decisive goal. But you just wonder if PSG maybe hasn't set themselves up to to lose one nothing on the road and be out of this competition. I wonder... Uh, so. I, if you remember, I, I'm a big fan of Blanc, and uh, I think in spite of that, he does, does deserve criticism. I, I can't help but wonder if the stuff that happened off the field this week, and I, I think you know what I'm referring to with the video uh, and the suspension and, and using and involving a player that was playing a huge part in Blanc's system. He was mm. providing a lot of steel in that midfield, he was providing a lot of work rate. And I wonder if the loss of that player and everything, all the off-field shenanigans had an impact to kind of destabilize the team. Because I thought the team looked very fragmented in multiple parts of the game. Yeah, that is interesting. Uh, if people don't know, Serge Ollier, uh Ivorian International, made a video that referred to Laurent Blanc by a homophobic slur. He has been effectively suspended indefinitely by Paris Saint-Germain. Most people are saying that he's not going to play again for the team this year. And it served as a major distraction uh, leading up to the game. I-, I wonder if that's the case too, Nipun. If... if um if they just maybe lost their focus a little bit, yeah. it did seem to take a, a disproportionate amount of their attention leading up to the game. I know a lot of people were speculating that um, in Hazard's comments about potentially right. moving to PSG this summer were going to yeah. be the distraction, but it, that was not the case. In fact, that was far overshadowed, I think, by what was going on with Serge Oye. Uh, yeah, I wonder, and I think it, just in general, it always seems to be the case when PSG play, we're left wondering, well, what kept them from showing... Their, what we think their true shelves should be, what kept them from really seizing this moment. And it's really easy for me to think in a couple of weeks it's going to be different at Stanford Bridge. They'll have it out of their system. They'll be right. distant from that distraction. On the other hand, I, I just don't know. I mean, Chelsea have enough players in here to, even if it is an upset, a, a 1-0 is not out of the realm of possibility. It would be a crushing exit for PSG, but they've put themselves in a position to be upset in a couple of weeks. I agree. I, I think Chelsea, if you had told Chelsea, if you had told Hiddink that they would come back to Stamford Bridge with the 2-1 scoreline, he would have taken it in a heartbeat. I think Chelsea will be way happier than PSG will be at this scoreline. There's no doubt about that. I still think, however, that PSG will go through uh, j- just based on the fact that I think Angel Di Maria is starting to show the level of form that we saw in his last season at Real Madrid. And that level of form, in my opinion, made him... <laughs> you must hate five. it. You must oh, absolutely. It. It's it's devastating for me. But I knew at no point while he was at United did I think he was a bad player. At yeah. no point did I think that it was an Angel Di Maria primarily fault. It, it was a Van Hall fault for the way he was playing him. But that's a different topic. My point is that uh, with Di Maria coming back to that level of form, Richard, 
that puts him, in my opinion, in the bracket of five best players in the world. And mm. if he can get back to that level, I think he's too good for Chelsea. Yeah. One one more point I wanted to ask you about, Richard, and this is slightly different away from the footballing aspect of this game. So to me, when I was watching this game, I was thinking about the fact that overall the, the narrative of PSG still remains that they are this financial behemoth and that, you know, they're never going to be the you know, the, the regular fans pick to win any game uh, just because of the fact they have so much money, much much like Chelsea. But I, I thought at the start of the season and after what happened in Paris with the attacks that they would have, be- they would have become some people's other team. Oh. And for whatever reason, uh, that is not happening with PSG. Have you considered that at all? Why that might be other than the money factor? I haven't considered that at all, but listening to how you explain it, it makes a lot of sense. And I wonder... If PSG does make it into the next round and they end up going against a, a Bayern or a Real Madrid, if mm. people do start to rally around them a little bit. Mm. I think for a lot of people, it's it's very difficult to care about Paris Saint-Germain because yeah. they don't actually play in that many games people want to watch. And now that they are playing in a game that people want to watch, well, so many of our friends are either Chelsea fans or lean towards the Premier League anyway. Maybe right. they don't get p- behind PSG in this scenario unless you support a rival of Chelsea. But when PSG takes on Real Madrid, it might be a little bit easier to support them. Makes sense. What, what did you think about the way that Goose Heating set up his team? We, we see, we've seen Chelsea play defensive in Europe before. Yep. We've seen them have a lot of success playing defensive in Europe. But they actually generated a lot of opportunities despite mm-hmm. the fact that they were playing very defensively i thought the big point for me richard was how good baba raman was in this game (laughs) i was i was blown away by that i mean given how little Mourinho had any sort of trust in this guy while Mourinho was manager you would have thought that this guy was a horrific defender and i know we're basing this on just two games now but i thought baba raman was very good in this game defensively uh got forward a little bit as but was good Mm -hmm. so defensively chelsea were very strong if you watch if you watch any, uh, we probably shouldn't go back in getting too nerdy about the tactical side, Richard, based on our last <laughs> recording together. But uh, I have to say that when you see the positions these guys had, the position Mikel and Fabregas had in front of them, the work rate of Pedro, and even Hazard, by the way, the work rate of Hazard was amazing as well. You have to give hitting a lot of credit here. Yeah. And of course, Chelsea was without John Terry, who was injured on the weekend, mm-hmm. and without yeah. Nemanja Matic, who was suspended for this game. Uh, Miazga on the bench. <laughs> yes, we heard a lot about that leading up to the game from our yeah. uh, fellow American Twitter friends. Um, also on Tuesday, Benfica got a late goal in Lisbon. They're up 1-0 on Zenit St. Petersburg, who finished that match with 10 men after Axel Witzel was sent off. On Wednesday, today as we're recording this, uh, Wolfsburg at Ghent. Two goals from Julian Draxler. Wolfsburg all of a sudden has woken up. They they allowed two goals very late. At one point, they were up 3-0. But this is now, combined with the weekend, two wins in a row for Wolfsburg. He'll take a 3-2 advantage back to Germany in this one. And then Real Madrid-Roma, this was a very interesting game, Nipun, yeah. because 2-0, I think a lot of people may have guessed that this would have been the scoreline ahead of time. Real Madrid getting goals from Cristiano Ronaldo and Jesse Rodriguez. Roma actually looked very strong in the second half. They came out of halftime and were generating most of the better chances throughout the second 45 minutes, but the better finishers for Real Madrid ended up taking the result for the Merengues. I think that's exactly right. I think a lot of times time people like myself spend way, waste way too much time thinking about tactics. This is a game that shows conclusively, in my opinion, that most of the time what matters are game changers, and that's what Roma lacked. They had so many chances, Richard. Mo, Mo Salah, we saw the best and yeah. the worst of Mohamed Salah in this game. Multiple times he beat Varane, 
he beat Ramos, he beat the fullbacks, he got past uh, everybody in Real Madrid on based on speed. Zero finished product. His mm. first touch was horrendous. So, you know, we, we saw the best and worst of this player that has been let go by Chelsea. On the other hand, Real Madrid, every time they got forward, they created chances. They they only their first shot on goal was like probably in the 60th minute or something like that. But they they were getting through way more, and it was coming back coming down to some good defending by Rodiger that was keeping Madrid at bay, as opposed to poor first touches or poor passes, like in the case of uh, Roma. Yeah, Antonio Rudiger, his first year with Roma. People sh- hopefully will have a chance to learn about him more this summer if he ends up being selected by Germany. I think he has six or seven caps for Germany already, but mm-hmm. you never you never know how those rosters are going to shake out on the back end of it. Uh, very good game there, but exactly like you said, a couple of game-changing plays. Cristiano Ronaldo taking on the right fullback, cutting back onto his right foot and scoring. Jesse Rodriguez taking on the left fullback, cutting back onto his left foot, scoring. Yeah. It's a difference in the game. Well, before getting to Europe, League. Let's talk about some Premier League news. The first affecting Manchester United, or how much will it affect Manchester United? Remains to be seen. Wayne Rooney is going to be out six weeks, two months. We're getting different timelines reported with a knee injury. Wayne Rooney had just started scoring goals over the last six or seven games. And on one level, Nipun, I think this is definitely going to be a miss, but I think the extent to which he's actually going to be missed will depend on how Louis Van Hall adjusts for Wayne Rooney and then also how the players that end up picking up the time actually play. I, I think one idea that comes to mind is Andre Herrera coming back into the starting lineup, Juan Mata going back wide, Martial going up top, and of course Lingard on the other side. The the idea that might actually take hold, which I'm sure Manchester United fans won't like, is Marouan Fellani moving back up a little bit in the formation. Yeah, uh, I think you've hit the nail on the head. I think it will be Fellaini. And by the way, I'm not one that jumps on Fellaini's back. I think he gets, he's definitely the boogeyman for a lot of Man United supporters. I, I think it's telling that we lost against Sunderland without Fellaini. But that's a topic for another day. Um, I think what will happen is we will see Fellaini reintroduced. We will also see the involvement of Memphis Depay. Mm-hmm. Let's remember that uh, one of Memphis's best performances came with him playing as a striker. I, I think it was the game the first game against Southampton where he scored in the first 10 minutes. It might have been Southampton or Sunderland. It was in the first half of the season. Hmm. But he scored with a left foot finish, a very neat finish. Uh, we might see Martial come towards the middle as well, which is something that Man United supporters have, have wanted to see. So from my opinion, I would love to see uh, the following. I would love to see Lingard or Memphis playing from the left or right. Uh, Mata playing behind the striker. Martial up top. Uh, and who am I forgetting? I'm forgetting someone. Uh, you're for, you're forgetting the other of Depay and, and yeah. Lingard on the other side. Right, right. So so either Memphis or Lingard on either side, and then Mata behind. Oh, I was forgetting Herrera actually. Uh-huh. And I'd like to see Herrera actually play behind the striker, and then Mata play from as the inverted winger as he's been playing from the right. So that's where I'd like to see. But of course it's more likely we'll see Fellaini up top. Hmm. Another injury doesn't have the duration of Rooney's injury, but Hugo Lloris, goalkeeper for Tottenham, injured his shoulder this weekend during Spurs' 2-1 win at the Etihad over Manchester City. He's going to miss the next two games, including Thursday's trip to Fiorentina in Europa League. Uh, Michelle Vorm is a very capable backup, probably one of the best backups in the league, Nipun. So I'm not sure that this is going to derail Spurs unless this injury lingers for longer than just the rest of this week. Yeah, but also we have to remember Loris's leadership as well. That is something that Spurs will miss. Mm-hmm. Um, some news not of the injury variety. Um, wanted to get your thoughts on 
the Manchester United Academy appointment. So Brian mm-hmm. McNair from uh, Manchester United left his post almost a year ago, I believe. Right. And Ed Woodward took his time naming a replacement as part of an overhaul, or not an overhaul, but a new look at the whole academy system, one that has been under some scrutiny as Manchester City and other clubs in the league have built up their academy product, maybe Manchester United falling behind a little bit. I, I think this appointment probably made a lot of Manchester United fans happy. Nicky Butt, somebody that is, was a longtime midfielder for the team, has been working with the team pretty much ever since his retirement uh, from his days at Newcastle, was appointed as the head of Manchester United's academy. What were your thoughts about that, Nipun? My thoughts were I was excited because he, here's someone that has lived that academy. He knows what it takes to make it at a club like Manchester United. Uh, you know, Manchester United is in his DNA, and, and the, the relevance of the class of 92 is pervasive at the club that the importance of those six individuals still remains. Mm-hmm. So it's exciting from that perspective, but playing, playing devil's advocate, when I listened to his interview about this, he referred to the fact that United needs to produce one team players like Giggs and Scholes and himself and the Nevilles and David, well, I guess not true for David Beckham, but players of that ilk. <laughs> uh, he also needs, to, he also mentioned that he wants to see United players go back to the days of old, that they were hard players. Oh, boy. Uh, quote, unquote, hard players, you know, and everything that that entails. And when I was listening to this interview, I was thinking, is this a man who's just out of touch with the modern day footballer? Because the players that are going to be coming through at this at United's Academy or any academy really in the world are not going to fit those criteria. So mm. uh, hopefully it was just an off the cuff remark given to a, a, an off the cuff interview on MUTV. Uh, but we'll see. I'm, I'm hoping for good things. Yeah, maybe there, maybe he was just spouting cliches, and right. when, when push comes to shove, and he has to put some actual theories into practice, there'll be a little bit more di- diversity behind those theories. Uh, let's talk to, about something that we just alluded to uh, in Hazard this week in yeah. the lead up to the Chelsea versus PSG, basically saying that the next goal in his career is to compete for a team with a team that can compete for Champions League. Basically, fanning the flames of those constant rumors of him to Paris Saint Germain. In fact. He he name checked Paris Saint Germain as a potential destination in his future. It seemed very brazen to me, Napoon. It was very disrespectful, I think. But it's not it's not uh, contradicting what we know about Eden Hazard, which is that he is a very self serving individual. Let's not forget how he left Lille. When he left Lille, he did flirt with the idea of PSG. In fact, PSG, Manchester United, and Manchester City were the three clubs that were markedly ahead of everyone else, quote unquote, to sign this guy. Then he came out with an interview saying, I will be going to England, which eliminated PSG. Then he came out with an interview. Uh, by the way, both Manchester City and Manchester United had both, quote unquote, signed him at different points this summer. And then he comes out and said he's going to sign for then Champions League winners who Chelsea had just won the Champions League. And this is after the whole protracted summer. And eventually it came to the fact that he left for Chelsea and left Lille in a way that I thought was very disrespectful to multiple clubs involved. So to me, it's not a surprise. Uh, and in some ways, PSG is probably the right club for him. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> let's talk about the Europa League matchups for Thursday. Three matchups where I think English teams are going to be favored, could do a lot to help the team's coefficient, something we're going to talk about in the next segment of the show. Uh, yep. Let's talk about Fiorentina versus Tottenham. This this is a great yeah. matchup. Third in Italy, second in England, two teams that have great attacking talent. Uh, Paulo Souza is a coach that people in England are going to recognize. He's going to be going up against English competition again. Nipun, your thoughts on this one? 
My thoughts are that so Spurs are favorites, even though Fiorentina are doing well. Uh, the, the players that I think about in terms of Fiorentina, one is Matias Fernandez, a player that has kind of fallen away, but he's a very good attacking midfielder. Uh, Kalinic, the Yugoslavian, who we know from his time at Blackburn. Uh, Zarate, who played for Birmingham City, West Ham, QPR, just signed for them. Those are players that, in my opinion, are danger men. Uh, and... But having said that, I think we know the strength of Spurs. We've talked about Spurs very uh, often here. Even though they'll be missing Loris, for me, they will probably go through. Mm. Uh, Fiorentina went 3-2-1 and one in group stage, losing to Basel and Lech Poznan before eventually going through. Manchester United got a very easy draw here. They're going up against Midgetland, which a lot of people will remember that Danish club from their appearance in Champions League two or three mm. years ago. Midgetland actually only got seven points in six group stage games. They had a negative six goal difference. They are the worst team from Europa <laughs> League's group stage that are going through uh, going up against Manchester United very fortunate draw yes uh, the Manchester United supporter in me is jumping up and down uh, this is a club that has only been in existence since February 1999 that's three months before United won the treble so this is a very recent club 17 years in existence uh, but at the same time we have to be cognizant Richard that under Louis van Gaal Manchester United has done abysmally when it comes to cup competitions, when it comes to teams that they should be comfortably beating. Mm -hmm. So from that one caveat, I'm a little bit worried, but obviously Manchester United go massive favorites into this. I have one quick uh, anecdote about Michelin. Uh, I I think uh, people on our our podcast are realizing I have a bit of a thing for players with Indian uh, heritage. So Mm -hmm. Harmeet Singh, this is a guy that's well-known, Richard, in Asian footballing circles. He was one point about six or seven years ago referred to as uh, the Norwegian, because he was born in Norway, but uh, his parents are from India, Norwegian Iniesta. Now, <laughs> he didn't quite reach those heights. Let's let's agree with that since he's at Michelin. Uh, had some good play, uh, good time at Molde when Solskjaer was manager there. But I think Michelin is probably the right uh, point for him as far as level of ability. Uh, and he has yet to make uh, an appearance for them. He just signed for them a couple months ago. But I think we'll see him involved against Man United. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, another interesting part of Thursday will be Jurgen Klopp going up against German competition for the first time since joining Liverpool uh, this winter. Liverpool drew Augsburg in the round of 32. Augsburg finished fifth in the Bundesliga last year, spent some time at the bottom of the league early in the yeah. season. They've climbed back to 13th place. Uh, they have actually they've lost three of their six games in this competition, twice to Athletic and once to Partizan. Another good draw for an English team here. Yeah, my, my good friend Gabe, who I do ULF with yesterday, pointed out to me, uh, he provided the stat to me, Augsburg's 23 goals they've scored total. Out of them, nine have come from set pieces, which means that they're good from set pieces, which means that they pose a threat to Liverpool, who are awful at defending set pieces. Hmm. Yeah, nine does seem like a high number. Yeah. Uh, so that's basically... I, I assume that those are league goals that he's talking about. So you're talking about roughly a set piece goal once every two, a little over two games. Yeah. That's a, that, that is pretty significant, especially for a Liverpool team that's likely not to use their first choice defenders in Europa League. Although I guess, I guess we should wait and see. They don't have too many first, yeah, first choice right now. There's only two choices. Yeah. If you have a pulse, you can play central defense. You're starting <laughs> against Augsburg. Um, they did sign Joel Matip for the summer, so that, that's good for them. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, we'll have to talk about Joel Matip another time. I think, uh, I think most people are higher on him than I am, although he could definitely help them right now. Right. It's by relative, right? Relative. 
defensively to Liverpool's defenders, he's he's probably better than quite a few of them. And, and they probably de- do need somebody back there that is decent with the ball at his feet, although Joao Matip was not decent with the ball at his feet on Friday against Mines. So all three English teams that are still alive in this competition on the road here, maybe the results this Thursday won't be that good. They'll play again next Thursday. I am expecting these three teams to go through Nippon. What are your thoughts? Do you think England's going to be able to start collecting some of these coefficient points via Europa League? Yeah, I think, I mean, all three games, uh, I think the closest one, in my opinion, would be Fiorentina-Spurs, but I think all three teams should go through fairly comfortably, and uh, it will be worth discussing if they don't. If they don't, it'll fall into a pattern of English teams disappointing (laughs) recently on the continent, something that maybe threatens the prestige of the Premier League, or does it? Does it even matter how the Premier League performs in Europe? Is the Premier League such a juggernaut that how the elite teams perform compared to the teams from other leagues doesn't affect its reputation at all? That's what we're going to be talking about in the next segment of this show, breaking down whether the Premier League's fall in Europe could lead to a fall in prominence or lead to nothing at all. Stay with us. This is the World Soccer Talk Podcast. Three games in the championship since our last podcast, two of which we actually care about. On Sunday, we alluded to the fact that Middlesbrough, who briefly reclaimed a spot at the top of the division last week, were set to travel to Leeds on Monday. Unfortunately for Borough, their fortunes didn't change at Ellen Road. A nil-nil draw ran their winless streak to five and left Hull City one clear at the top of the table. On Tuesday, Hull had their chance to extend that lead to four, though to do so, they'd need to claim full points from Brighton, a club that entered the match on a four-game winning streak. At the KC Stadium, unfortunately for championship fans, there was another nil-nil draw. A good result for Brighton, who now continue to close their gap on the top two, but for Hull, it means Borough stays within reach. The standings right now at the second level has Hull on 60 points through 31 matches. Middlesbrough, with a game in hand, is on 58. Outside of those top two automatic spots, we have Brighton on 57, Burnley 56, then Sheffield Wednesday 53, and the last playoff spot, Derby 51. Nippon, every weekend we talk about who we think is going to win the league. Now let's talk about the teams that we think are going to drop out of the league. Last week when we did the show, we had Aston Villa, Sunderland, and Norwich. You and I both picking the same three teams. Are you sticking with that trio? I am sticking with that trio. That's been my trio since game week one. Not convinced by Sunderland, huh? Yeah. So I think it's a bit of a false dawn, Richard. I I know they uh, rather comfortably beat Man United. Yeah, does that have to do with the competition (laughs) that they were facing this weekend? (laughs) Yeah, I don't think Man United's a very good team. So I think so. I was just looking at their fixtures while we were uh, starting to talk. And uh, interestingly, they both have very similar uh, comparable fixtures remaining. They both have a couple of... About three tricky fixtures left. Leicester City, uh, Chelsea for one of them. Uh, Sunderland's already played. Uh, sorry, Newcastle's already played Chelsea. Uh, and then there was an Arsenal. They both play, I have, to have to play Arsenal, I think. So in, uh, they have comparable fixtures. Um, it, I just, I don't know what it is. I mean, I, it's not that I think uh, uh, McLaren's an exceptional manager. And I was dis- discussing this with Kristen Hennarch. I don't think he's a very good manager. There's just something about Newcastle's personnel, I think, that gives mm-hmm. me a little bit more belief that they will, in spite of Sunderland's signings, uh, finish uh, just above Sunderland. I agree with you on the personnel front. And I think that's the reason the rest of us on the show 
keep debating Newcastle as yeah. a team that sometimes looks good and this is their dawn and um, they're putting everything together just as we suspected they always should. But at this point of the season and coming off that performance this weekend, mm-hmm. I, I'm inclined to say that Sunderland has a better chance of finishing above Newcastle uh, than the other way around. Mm-hmm. And so I'm left in the same position last week where I'm looking at Newcastle and asking, is there any other team in the division that's more likely to join Villa and Norwich than they are? And I just can't come up with it right now. Uh, okay. So I'm putting Newcastle here, but... I'm still very much of the same mindset I was seven days ago. Villa looks like they're definitely going down. Norwich hasn't done anything to persuade me. And so kind of just left with who seems most likely out of the rest, even if you're not quite convinced that any of them are ready to join those bottom two yet. So Newcastle's the pick this week. Uh, FA Cup coming this weekend on Saturday. Arsenal hosts Hull. Leeds visits Watford. West Bromwich Albion is at Reading. And Bournemouth face Everton. On Sunday, Blackburn versus West Ham. Crystal Palace is at White Hart Lane to face Tottenham. And then the marquee matchup of the round. Chelsea hosting Manchester City. On Monday, Shrewsbury, the only team outside the top two levels in England still alive in the competition. Luckily enough to have Manchester United at home. <laughs> uh, Nipun, anything from those fixtures jump out at you? Chelsea City, of course, mm-hmm. uh, going to be the marquee game for sure, in my opinion. Uh, but both those teams will be probably highly rotated. So in, just because of that fact, it'll be it'll be a fun matchup. Mm-hmm. City midweek next week, they face Dynamo Kiev in Champions League. Having to, having to travel to Ukraine, Manuel Pellegrini has already, compl- has already complained about the fact that they're going to be playing their FA Cup match on Sunday instead of Saturday to have an extra day to travel. Has mm-hmm. already hinted he's going to rotate his squad. Programming note, over the next couple of podcasts on Sunday, it's going to be me and Lawrence for one segment, then me and Kartik for another one, looking at the weekend's action, but then also talking about an article Kartik put on the site this week that previewed the remaining fixtures of the season in the Premier League for the top four. We'll talk about who he has coming out on top and why. And then next Wednesday, Nipun and myself are going to be back together to preview, preview the 27th round of the Premier League. But before that, Kartik and myself will look back at Champions League and look forward to the second legs of the round of 32 matchups in Europa League. Can, can we start referring to you and I as the A-team? Just uh, That's what I want. Mm, only if we start calling me Mr. T. <laughs> <laughs> I can do that, Richard. Ah, uh, okay. Well, I pity the fool that calls you Mr. T. <laughs> oh, I pity him for so many reasons if they did that. Well, on these podcasts where we don't have a preview of a round of the Premier League coming up, we like to pick a topic and dig a little bit deeper. And one of the topics that has come up on the show a lot during the year is just the relative strength of the Premier League. We talked about that in the previous show. We're not going to get into that again. Instead, we're going to talk about an extension of how the Premier League has been performing lately, and specifically how the Premier League has been performing in Europe. Most of you know that the Premier League has lost its perch as UEFA's number one league and is on the verge of losing its spot as the number two league in the coefficient list. Germany looks like they're going to pass them this year. And Italy is right on England's heels as far as reclaiming that fourth Champions League spot. All of which begs a question. The Premier League, currently recognized as, if not the best, at least the most prestigious and the most popular league in the world, could it be undone by this lack of being competitive compared to other teams in Europe? Uh, could it be that people eventually start looking at England the same way it has looked at other teams that have slipped from the ranks of elite leagues in Europe? We're going to get into this 
in great detail over the next 10 or 15 minutes, but just instinctively, Nipun, what do you think about that? I think the Premier League's insulated for the foreseeable future uh, as far as their prestige in the world, because unfortunately, Richard, now the word prestige has a lot to do with the level of players that are playing. Mm-hmm. And that, and the level of players, Richard, that are playing is directly proportional to the money in the league, which means that given the amount of money in the Premier League, they're insulated from a loss of prestige. I, I completely agree with you. I think it's that prestige among the players specifically, as well as the perception of the players themselves by fans. But among the players, I think over the last 10 years, I've really noticed that players themselves have stopped looking to Italy and Spain right. as the number one destinations. And it's basically that if you can't get to Real Madrid or Barcelona, you're going to go to the Premier League. And maybe mm-hmm. there's some exceptions for PSG or Bayern, but pretty much if you can't get to those top four, you're going to go to the Premier League. Well, Nipun, let's break this down a little bit because I think it is worth, given how some of our other discussions on this show have gone, kind of defining <laughs> our terms a little bit. Yeah. You know, you hear people talk about the Premier League as being the best league or the most competitive league in the world. I, I don't think you and I really think those labels really matter, mm-hmm. particularly regarding this conversation. I think that the Premier League being the most prestigious league in the world, kind of the destination league, like we were just talking about, mm-hmm. I think that's what matters. Do you yeah. get, I mean, is that your impression too, that aside from a couple of exceptions as far as clubs around the world goes, players want to go to the Premier League? Undoubtedly. I, I think that is exactly true. I think uh, there's starting to be a recognition from top level players that, you know, as you said, if if you don't end up at uh, maybe three or four other clubs in the world, Premier League is the place to go. And it's not necessarily that you end up. So 10 years ago, it wasn't that the Premier League was the place to go. It was mm. Manchester United that was the place to go. It was Arsenal that was the place to go. That's not the case anymore. You have Man United, you have Arsenal, Liverpool, Chelsea, uh, you know, City. Spurs, City, sorry, thank you, Sp- uh, City, Burnmouth where Iturbe is now, Stoke City (laughs) with those three Barcelona players. I mean, we can rattle off multiple teams where players that we once considered to be high-level players are now playing in clubs that we don't regularly consider to be high-level clubs. So I think it feeds the narrative, in my opinion, that the prestige of prestige, a.k.a also money, uh, is very high in the league. Yeah, I think there's still a, a bit of incredulity behind it because as we saw this summer when Jaren Shakiri was going to Stoke right. City, a lot of people still scratch their heads when they see a major... I didn't believe team. it until I saw him in a Stoke shirt. But if that's, I didn't believe it. Yeah, but I think at some point we just have to accept the drawing power of the Premier right. League. I don't think that's the drawing power of Stoke, per se. I think that's the drawing power of the Premier League. And I think that's one of the things that's going to maintain the Premier League's perch. But a lot of this probably just sounds like truisms to people, just saying that, oh, the Premier League is the most prestigious league in the world. But there is an importance behind that. That prestige is what leads to the huge television contracts that the Premier League gets in Great Britain and internationally. It's what fuels the budgets of all these teams that then go out and play the player wages that are the predominant part of their, their outflow. Without that prestige, they don't get that money. So... You can say that the being the most prestigious league in the world is just a truism and it doesn't really matter. It actually commercially matters a great deal that the Premier League, even if they're not the most prestigious uh, in terms of winning competitions or competing against European teams, what really matters is that they are perceived by the world as the most prestigious team. 
league. That's in the exactly world. right. Yeah, perception is really the big thing. I, I think what the Premier League did well, Richard, about uh, 15 years ago, is really started promoting their product all over the world. They did it before other leagues did. I think other, the other leagues yeah. definitely lagged behind, especially La Liga, especially Bundesliga, who at that point, in my opinion, and of course, Serie A as well, these three leagues probably had better football than the Premier League did at that time, better quality players uh, week in, week out at that time. Uh, but what happened was once the Premier League really made a push to promote the product all over the world and started exponentially growing in as far as viewership, all of a sudden you start seeing uh, David Beckham jerseys in India and, and you know, and uh, there was the whole Arsenal-Man United rivalry that everyone followed. Mm-hmm. So all of those things have now come to the point that 15 years later, we are seeing the the brilliance of the, the decisions made by the Premier League around 99, 2000, 2001. Mm. And I think you could argue conceivably that that commercial push where the Premier League was the first to really reach out to North America, reach out to Asia, set out, Mm -hmm. set roots in Africa. uh, I think you could argue that the fact that those efforts started to bear fruit at the same time where England really did appear to be the best league in, in UEFA. And I, I, I think that it was at the time when what was it? Four or five over four or five year span, England had something like fifteen Champions League semifinalists. Right. Manchester United winning Champions League. Chelsea, Liverpool a little bit before that. Um Arsenal was Arsenal. making semifinals. Liverpool was making semifinals at that time too. It was really difficult to argue that England didn't have the best league in the world at the time. And I think that's what really perpetuated the idea that best and most prestigious kind of got coupled there for a while, for six or seven years. And I think that's why even today we have this lingering problem in defining our terms. Everybody agrees that the Premier League is the most prestigious league in the world. You don't have a lot of agreement as to whether it's the best league in the world. Here, I think the, the important thing that we're talking about is that prestige factor and the ability to go out and get multi-billion dollar television deals right. and then funnel that into the club. Now, now, into the clubs. Now, the question is whether that fall from being the best league, whether at any point it will affect that prestige. Now, we, there are a couple of recent examples that mm-hmm. it could. I think the most prominent is Syria A. Uh, mm-hmm. Syria, of course, has never been the commercial juggernaut that England was, but we have seen over the last seven or eight years the prestige of that league just fall. I mean, we don't even update people on that league and our weekend <laughs> updates anymore. And even though it has one of the best title races in Europe this year, we don't talk about it. And it's just because people have stopped comparing, uh, stop care, stop caring about the Syria at the same time that their teams stopped being so competitive in Europe. But I will say there's one additional factor there, Richard, with with Italy. It's that huge bribery scandal. I mean, that in my, that, that's when I stopped caring about Serie A. When you have, when you find out the likes of Juventus and Mm. AC Milan and Napoli are involved in bribing referees to shave points, you just, you just don't care after that point. It's, it's never going to be the same for me. Even now that I know, I I mean, I'm confident that Juventus, AC Milan, Inter Milan, all these clubs are not involved in that sort of thing anymore. I'm glad one person is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, maybe I shouldn't be so involved, so convinced, right? Uh, but it's it's never going to be the same for me with Serie A. Another thing to think about, Richard, as far as marketability, if you are trying to sell a product to the Western world, to a civilized Western world, and you show Serie A, which is rampant with the ultra culture, with racism, with financial problems, it's probably not 
everybody's cup of tea. I, I don't think most fans want to see uh, the level of madness that we see in Italy all the time. So I think that's another reason that Italy has fallen behind. I, I think not, that's not a good that point. England doesn't have racism, by the way. I'm not saying that. But <laughs> just, just Italy has uh, has had multiple issues of that. I think those are all great points, and that's why any kind of one for one comparison in this realm is never going to work. Each league is different. Breaking news there. Um, <laughs> you can also look at a league like the Dutch League that had yeah. for a long time uh, Ajax and, yeah. and PSV and even Feyenoord being a former European champion there. Um, whereas 15 years ago, people cared about the Dutch League. Now people just don't care about the Dutch League as being anything more than seeing where those FM players that you bought for your team <laughs> actually play in real life. Uh, and then on the other end of it, we're starting to see Germany's prestige grow. And that's because Germany can now sell itself as not only one of the most competitive leagues in the world, but based on results on the field in Champions League and Europa League and looking at the UEFA coefficients, they can now sell themselves as one of the best leagues in the world. And that's starting to lead to TV deals like the Fox contract they have here in the United States. Yeah, I think Bundesliga is coming. So in the mid-90s, um, or maybe even the late 90s, I thought the level of the Bundesliga was way above Premier League. Uh, I don't think it has been that high ever since, except for Bayern Munich and one or two years for Dortmund. I think that's starting to change. I think there's, uh, and you and you and Karthik talked about this in a really good podcast maybe a month ago, where you guys talked about uh, the rise of Bundesliga. Uh, sorry, the popularity of what Fox is trying to do, I guess, with promoting Bundesliga and probably failing because it's Fox. Uh, <laughs> but the point is that Bundesliga has started to make inroads in America the way Premier League did uh, 10, 15 years ago in, in across the world and about five years ago in America. Mm -hmm. So I think in that sense, Bundesliga is making the right moves. And as Karthik pointed out, there's been uh, there's some connect there's some connections in terms of U.S. players that have played at the clubs like Leverkusen. And of course, the player that I think is incredibly marketable, although he's not uh, American, he's Mexican, is Chicharito, and him being at Leverkusen, I think, definitely raises the profile and the interest uh, of, of the Bundesliga. Mm -hmm. But just taking the, now the Bundesliga's rise, um, and it has, as you talk about, some other things going for it, uh, yeah. the fall of Serie A, the fall of the Eredivisie, we do see some evidence that we've picked out, and there's a lot more evidence, these are just prominent examples, that being competitive in Europe matters as far as the league's prestige is concerned. The question is whether it matters to this Premier League because the mm. world has never seen a league that is quite the juggernaut of this Premier League. And so kind of the question as far as whether the Premier League might suffer the same misfortunes that the, that Serie A has come down to why do we think the Premier League is different? And do those differences actually dovetail with something that can maintain the league's prestige? Now, I think that I think one thing that is really helpful is what we've already mentioned. When Serie A starts to fail, what what fan bases, what revenue streams, what commercial entities do they have to fall back on? Mm. When the Premier League starts to wane, well, they're still going to be the most popular league in the North American market. They're still going to be the most popular league in the Asian market. They're probably the leaders in the Chinese market, the biggest, um, po biggest population base that hasn't really started to exert its force on world soccer, even though it may be doing that now if their president keeps pushing as hard <laughs> as he is. Uh, and I think that's, Nipun, uh, I want to get your thoughts on it, but I think that's one place where Premier League fans can point and say, you know, we might fall to fourth in the UEFA coefficient, but it doesn't yeah. matter because all of these new fans, they're not turning to Italy and Germany to get their football. They're going to stay with the Premier League. 
Yeah, and it comes back to that expo- brilliant exposure that the Premier League has all over the world with marketing rights and and really good coverage. So so when I was in India, Richard, uh, last time I was home was three years ago, and I was in India and I was blown away by how good the coverage was because when I left India when I was eighteen and I started as watching the Premier League, the coverage was abysmal. So. Everywhere, all across the world, the Premier League is being taken as a serious product, as a product that competes with any sport at any given time. Yeah. I mean, let me give you this example. Now, India, a country of 1.2 billion, obviously obsessed with cricket. But after cricket, Premier League is the biggest thing. And that's a huge, huge, huge market, a uh, huge market for the Premier League. Yeah, that's pretty scary, actually, too. Uh, yeah. You know, chi- China has its own leagues and various sports established. They have a, a wide array of sporting interests. But uh, as far as international competitions that really captivate them, it's just the NBA right now mm-hmm. in China. Um, it's just the Yao Ming effect. That's it. Right. And so there's a huge market for a kind of international product to go in there and really claim all those new fans. And I, even though we see some investment from Chinese companies in La Liga teams, and so maybe La Liga's presence will grow there, I still think it's just the Premier League. Let me let me ask you one question, Richard, real quick. Hmm. So my one, uh, the one thing I think of that might hurt the Premier League uh, in terms of um, a future, future, like I, I don't think any either one of us doubts that the Premier League is good financially for the foreseeable future uh right i think we're both in agreement on that yeah well i mean i guess that's kind of we're talking what we're talking about here i mean the only the only thing is if this prestige issue means that there'll be relatively dwindling television contracts and commercial contracts in the future what i worry about there'll be dwindling quality of players just because united uh not united well united does this but uh premier league will keep investing in uh possibly or funnel in all this money into Mm -hmm. Uh, not so great players while the great players maybe move to other clubs is, is that a, yeah. a, a a realistic problem because let's be honest the out of the 10 best players in the world over half maybe six maybe seven, well let me let me say eight of them play at either bayern psg uh real madrid or or uh barcelona right and i think beyond that when you look at the quality of the young players that end up going to Bar- going to or coming through barcelona and real madrid and we're talking about like when there's a bidding war for martin odegaard from the 16 year old from norway last year he ends up at real madrid or when was the last time a premier league team developed a sergio busquets caliber player so joey, joey barton probably <laughs> jo- yeah sorry <laughs> I, I hate how we're always disrespecting joey barton on the show i agree <laughs> So I, I think what this comes up a lot when we talk about these issues. There are a lot of levels where Premier League teams kind of need to get smarter, it seems like. And they need to stop competing with themselves so much and start competing with the best of Europe. And maybe that's the problem is that the Premier League has become so big and so self-sustaining that it's an insular culture where – you don't really have that much incentive to compete with Real Madrid and Barcelona. Right. You just stop caring almost about what's going on on the pitch because you know off the pitch you're golden. Yeah. Or maybe if you're a Chelsea team that comes off a league title and eh, we're probably not going to be able to spend to catch up to Real Madrid and Barcelona. So we're just not going to make any huge signings this year. Next thing you know, all your veterans suck at the same time and you're in the bottom right. of the league. Um, maybe there isn't the external competition factor in the Premier League. You could say the thing, same thing about City and their lack of pushing forward, although they do seem to be really trying to make some strides in Europe, so maybe that's not the best example. But you talk about players. I think um, there's this level of player, and the, this year's ex- best example is Dimitri Payet, right. who can't get to one of those big four clubs 
maybe can't even get to one of the big five or six clubs in England, and they're still going to come to England because of the wages. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple years before, I think people were a little bit surprised that Hugo Lloris ended up at Tottenham, going from yeah. Lyon to Tottenham, where he kind of bowed out of Champions League. But he decided to come to a good club in London that plays decent wages, a stable club, et cetera, et cetera. And that's worked out for him. And we already mentioned some of the other examples earlier in the show of a Zerdin Shakiri. I, I think that's just going to keep happening. But I mean, look, forget that. I think Di Maria, he left Real Madrid for Man United, you know, yeah. when Man United weren't in the Champions League. Falcao left Monaco for Real, uh, for Man United. Uh, multiple players have left Champions League football for for Premier League simply because, honestly, we pay better. Hmm. Well, and as Kartik has mentioned on the, another show, I like the way he described it. There's kind of a law of diminishing returns here. When you yeah. have enough of the, this kind of baseline talent that's kind of at the Dimitri Payet level, when you bring somebody like that in, you're not really swapping out him in for a bad player. There's like a talent level at which only superstar players are going to really lift the league. Now, as far as our discussion here is concerned, Nipun, I think that means that there's very little danger of the Premier League bottoming out and really falling beyond fourth in the the UEFA coefficient or even staying fourth for that long. There are so many teams that can make an impact of Europe once they start um, really focusing on that goal. I think on the other hand, it becomes very difficult to raise the level of the league because right. now you're talking about expenditures that have that are becoming inefficient and you really do need a team like, you know, like Manchester United kind of spending blindly and not really efficiently, but they are trying to reach a certain level that you can only spend you can only reach if you spend like a, a Real Madrid or a Barcelona. Look, I think with the with the money side of things, Richard, we, we're very delicately placed in world football in general, not not just the Premier League. I think we've come to a uh, almost a tipping point where salaries and transfer fees are becoming well, they've been exorbitant for a long period of time, but I think they're getting to the point where they're obscene. Uh, what China is doing is fantastic for for the game in some ways because it's it's funneling in money into Europe because most of the deals that were happening were happening from one European club to the other. But China is funneling money, external money into European clubs that mm-hmm. can be, you know, however dispersed, however you want to interpret that. But the point is that that when you have someone like Asomo Jian make the kind of making the kind of money he's making, it's going to get to the point where the idea of a of a footballer caring about football for football's sake will disappear once he makes it to the big league. You'll have player it's possible that you'll have players caring about football. It's their life till they're 18 years old. They sign for a club, then they sign for a, another club, and that's it. All they care about is collecting paychecks. I know that's extremely, extremely pessimistic and probably won't happen, but I think we are in, in danger of that. Yeah, that's fine with me. All I care about is collecting paychecks in my life. I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to say footballers need to be different. In fact, they have a shorter career span than I do. I think they should be more motivated by money than I will. I mean, I can just, I can go someplace just because I'm, they have a good retirement plan that they double my, uh, double my contributions to. They kind of need I mean, to look up for true. themselves. I mean, the, the irony of that is that that's, that's the very, that's an American model of sport. And that's what the NFL is all about, right? So <laughs> in that sense, I, I, I understand that. I respect the fact that Premier League, everyone should get be paid uh, as much as they can. But when it comes to football, which is something that I love, and I'm sure you, you do, which is why we talk about this game, we almost wish in some ways that players would be more like us and care about the sport the way we care about the sport. Yeah, maybe. I guess not. I don't know. I guess I haven't really thought about that that much. Um, I, I do. Th- you mentioned the United States, though. I do think that one thing that the Premier League will always have going for it, 
when it's fighting these battles and if the battle ever gets to the point where we might see commercial entities and television stations mm-hmm. consider not offering the Premier League as much money as they do now because maybe the qu- quality of the product has slipped or maybe fans really do at some point on a broad scale kind of assess the Premier League as not being the the best soccer they could watch. I think even if all that happens, the one trump card that the Premier League has is its c- cultural connection to the United States. Right. And the financial power of the United States as a concerned sport. And until another league can come in and sever the connection between the United States and England, I think there's only so far the revenue streams are going to fall for for English teams. They're always going to be able to rely on this market in addition to their own to retain a certain prominence in the world. I think so. And uh, I don't think there's any... Uh, I don't think there's a real concern of the U.S. not being a financial hegemon for the near future. And based on that, what you said is absolutely right. They're, as long as and they've done a good job of that, they've built a, a loyal fan base. And I think soccer is a sport that can contain continues its loyal fan base, which means even if Chelsea start losing games, which they're doing, even if Man United continues to play like their six-year-old children, uh, there will continue to be a loyal fan base, and therefore money and prestige. From an American fan standpoint, yeah, you can change the quality of football, but you can't change you can change the quality of football quickly, but you just can't change the dimensions of culture that quickly. And I think right. that's the big link. And as we talked about before, the Premier League has done a very good job of establishing those kind of cultural links in other places. I think intuitively, it always feels like people want to watch the best product, and in sports, it's tempting to measure the best product in terms of wins and losses, and maybe some other things also affect that, but. Um, it just hasn't happened yet. The, the England has not competed at, at the same level in Champions League and Europa League for what, like five or six years now. And the excitement yeah. about the Premier League has not waned during that time. Uh, I think that as much as Italy and Holland and all these other examples throughout history show that if your teams can't compete, fan interest is going to wane. I almost find the counter arguments more persuasive here, Nipun, in that all of these cultural and financial factors of the modern football world mean that the Premier League can actually stink in Europe or just almost disregard Europe, and the product that they have is so strong that it's not going to affect the Premier League stature around the world. I agree. I think with the um, uh, I was talking about this with a friend. It's almost to the point, almost uh, to the point that qualifying for Champions League isn't as important as it was in terms of money anymore. Because there's so much money in the Premier League that the little bit of difference you get between qualifying for the Champions League and not qualifying for the Champions League isn't as substantial as it was. There was a time when clubs like even Man United needed to survive uh, to to uh, to qualify for the Champions League to be able to have the amount of money to invest in that the following summer. Now with the huge sponsorship deals, uh, everything else. It's not that big of a deal. It, it would be a huge deal for Leicester City. Don't get me wrong, but for uh, for a club for your regular top six clubs, it's not that big of a deal anymore. Yeah. It's just too easy to go out there and find an official noodle sponsor and make up <laughs> some of that money. Well, I, I think we what we can do coming away from this is feel a little bit better if you're a Premier League fan about. Yeah just the importance of European competition. Of course, you want your teams to do well, and there are some bragging rights involved, but in terms of prestige, 
as far as how the rest of the world looks at the Premier League, it just doesn't seem like a lot of it is actually tied into doing well in Champions League, doing well in Europa League. And in that sense, if the results continue for Premier League teams, it's probably not going to matter too much as far as the actual Premier League product is concerned. Essentially, what we've said, Richard, is money matters more than results. Oh, my God. Yep, let's bring Lawrence in and let's talk about good money, bad money, but let's do that on another show. For now, we're going to go ahead and leave you. We'll be back in four days to talk about the weekend's action as well as preview the next week in Champions League where Manchester City and Arsenal get back on the field. But until then, for everybody at the World Soccer Talk family, I'm Richard Farley. Nipun, enjoy your cricket. The World Soccer Talk podcast is a production of World Soccer Talk and is executive produced by Christopher Harris and produced by Richard Farley. You can get the podcast a number of different ways, including Stitcher, iTunes, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Audioboom, or you can go to worldsoccertalk.com to download the show directly. To get in touch with one of the hosts, you can reach out to them on Twitter. I'm Richard Farley. Kartik is KKFLA737. Lawrence is LOZCAST, LawsCast. And Nipun is Nipun Chopra7. Don't want to bother with Twitter? Go ahead and reach out via email. Richard at WorldSoccerTalk.com. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.,